Are you looking for adventure? Do you want to find peace? Long-distance trails offer you freedom and discovery. They offer a way to connect to yourself and to the world around you at the same time. The most popular trails have become crowded, but there are so many other trails that have plenty of space. The Trails Around the World podcast is here to introduce you to new trails and to new types of trails and to expand your horizons. Join me as we explore finding out what is possible and how to do it. Welcome back for part two of the interview about through hiking in Europe. In part one, we discussed our guest Christine's background, the routes she's walked across Europe, how trails in Europe are different from other places and why, camping versus lodging, and trail community. In part two, we pick up and continue with the subject of meeting people on the trail in Europe. We will get into much more detail about how to do this and how to handle the logistics of hiking in Europe in this episode. And now we rejoin the interview. How much opportunity is there to meet locals along these trails? A lot, a lot of opportunity. Because as I said, you're hiking through farmland and you're hiking through commercially used forests. Right. So you'll meet farmers, you'll meet foresters, you'll meet hunters, you will work forest workers, you'll meet all sorts of people. Mm -hmm. And they are basically curious, what are you doing there? So you'll have a lot of encounters and both of, and usually friendly encounters. So this is, again, as I said, like you will, you will learn a lot about the history and culture because you meet these, uh, you meet these people. So I have to, I, I now want to tell you a funny story, what happened to me on the trail to, to, uh, to explain like what sort of insights you'll, you'll, you'll get. When I hiked to Tarifa, to the southernmost point in Europe, mm -hmm. uh, I, 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 I got lost several times because the trail was not marked. And uh, I was just walking randomly around in these uh, old terraces because people uh, in former centuries, they terraced the, the steep landscape to be able to, to, to agriculturally use it. Right. So basically I haven't seen anyone for hours and I walk in this, it is totally uh, empty landscape. And all of a sudden I see this older guy in a jumpsuit with a plastic bag and a dog. And I'm like, what is this guy doing there? <laughs> I had this weird feeling, what is he doing there? So I speak fluent Spanish. I asked him like, where's the trail, blah, blah. And he, he knew his area very well. He said, okay, you go back this way, blah, blah. His explanation was, 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 was great. I was still wondering, what is he doing there? And I said, okay, thank you. And turned around, wanted to walk away. And I had already started walking away when he said, aren't you wondering what I'm doing here? And I was like, oh, yes, of course I wonder. But now I was really worried, like, what is this guy up to? And I, I was turning around, really expecting this must be an exhibitionist. I was expecting, like, he would lower his pants. <laughs> I was, like, confronted with this God knows what sex offender. So I turned around, no naked, no naked guy. He was just smiling at me and saying, I'm looking for truffles. And I'm like, I What? You're doing what you're looking for truffles <laughs> and all of a sudden i get this this this, this situation completely turned from like oh god this is like a, a dangerous situation to what is he's looking for truffles mm 
He says, yeah, uh, I'm here with my dog because I always thought truffles were searched by pigs. He said, no, 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 pigs, they always eat the truffles. It's not so good. The dog is much better. <laughs> and look at, <laughs> look at this. And he, he, he opened his plastic bag and showed me some truffles. I said, oh, I, uh, in, in, in high season, I get 900 euros for a kilo of truffles. And I was like, wow. And we talk about truffles. I said, well, you must be a rich guy. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, the situation took another very serious turn because all of a sudden the joking stopped and said, no, I'm not rich because this is my only source of income. And like all the other men in my village, I'm unemployed for years. There's no industry. There's nothing here. The only way we can make a living is by looking for mushrooms, by looking for truffles, and which is legally forbidden. If you see anyone here, don't tell them you've, uh, you've talked to me. And then it dawned on me, what I've, what I've read in the newspaper is that Spain had an unemployment rate of 25%. Right. So one quarter of, of people were unemployed and the youth unemployment rate was even 50%. So all of a sudden, like the numbers I've just re- I've read in the newspapers, this dire numbers all of a sudden had a face. And this guy was like, hey, this is my only source of income. So, so I told you that story of like, this is a sort of encounter you'll have if you take your time and talk to the people and people are very friendly and they're interested in what are you doing here? Like again, like all the farm workers I met in Spain, I was their only entertainment. And they told me all the stories like where they live under what horrible conditions they are living. And it, it, uh, I once asked, uh, I, I passed a, a, set, a small settlement where all the farm workers were living and I, and I asked for water. And they said, okay, uh, wait a minute. And it took them forever to bring the water back. I said, like, why don't you, where is the water tap? Is it so far away? And he said, no, we don't have any water taps here. The, the, the water is so contaminated here from, uh, from all the agriculture, we cannot use the well. The only water we can have for drinking here is rainwater we collect. So I had to go to the rainwater tank and give it to get your water. And this is this is Europe. This is this is the EU. And this is the situation these farm workers were living in. I was like, I was shocked. Right. And from that time on, when I go to the supermarket here and buy oranges and, and apples, I always have in mind these huge plantations, these huge orange plantations in Spain. I walk through and I see these farm workers who say, no, we cannot drink the water here. We have to collect rainwater. So it changes your perspective. And this is some really touching encounters you have. If you speak the language, if you take the time to talk to these people, you will learn a lot. Right. Wow. (laughs) So let's turn a little bit to the equipment you use and... You mentioned that you're an ultralight hiker and that pretty much as soon as you started, you uh, in, back in 2004, you did your research ahead of time and you arrived at the trailhead with a light bag. So quickly, we can. what is your base weight now? You're around uh, five, five kilos. kilos. So yeah. that's 10, 11 pounds. And in, in a... American ultralight terms, the big threes or big four, what do you use for a backpack? Well, uh, you, 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 you want me to mention the brand or? Uh, sure. Or, sure. Uh, well, let's see. Okay. Again, I have to start. What, what, uh, what, capacity, what capacity do you, do you tend to favor um, for three season hiking? Uh, it's about 60 liters. 
60 liters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, again, I'm my hiking style or my equipment doesn't change whether I hike in the US or whether I hike in Europe. I have five kilos for a three season uh, hike and maybe six kilos a little more for a winter hike. Uh -huh. The problem is not the problem. The difference is in the US, and again, we have to come back to what we've discussed earlier. Right. In the US, through hikers are forced to go ultralight because they are forced to go camping. Right. There is no infrastructure in the wilderness. So right. if you go, if you through hike, if you're through hiking, you have to carry your camping equipment. Right. It's totally different in Europe. You don't have to camp. Uh, on the contrary, you're not supposed to camp. I still do it. We come to that later. But you're not supposed to camp. So people, most people hike from shelter to shelter or from hotel to hotel. They do credit card hiking. Right. So they don't have any incentive to go ultralight which means all the ultralight movement has not come very far in Europe. Most hikers you'll meet on the trails will be traditional hikers with heavy backpacks. So your typical pilgrim on a Camino who goes from uh, one albergue uh, to the other one, right. means he doesn't camp, carries more gear than your traditional uh, US through hiker. Which is which is bizarre because these people have everything. They don't need uh, they don't need a cooking setup. They don't need uh, a sleeping bag. They don't need a, sh a shelter. But they still carry more gear. See, there is no incentive whatsoever to go ultralight. So people are always surprised in Europe to always surprised to see my tiny backpack, because not many people go ultralight. Mm -hmm. But the ultralight movement is beginning to come to Europe as well. So we have small cottage cottage companies who are, uh, which start producing ultralight gear here as well. So most of the gear I'm using now is basically made in Europe. Uh -huh. Just because it's, it's uh, I don't mind buying US gear, but the problem is with uh, shipping and customs, it becomes right. way too expensive. Yes. So this is the reason why I try to shop inside the EU. Right. And we have, uh, uh, there's even an ultralight company in the Ukraine. There is one in Slovenia. Huh. Uh, there is one in Poland. It's in the, in the, most, in the most unlikely places, uh, there are cottage companies which produce ultralight gear. So this is the kind of gear I use now. The gear is very similar to what you would get in the US, but it's just made in, made in Europe. Right. I hadn't heard that interpretation of why ultralight has been so so s slow to catch on in Europe, and that's a very interesting point about the different way that people hike, um, the different lodging that people are using. So we've touched on this or, or edged around this uh, several times, and um, let's talk about camping versus using lodging when hiking in Europe. Personally, one of the delights of hiking the GR5 or other routes in Europe was that I didn't need to carry camping equipment. And in fact, all I needed to carry was lunch because I think uh, in 28 nights on the GR5, I spent two camping, maybe it was one, one or two nights camping on that whole distance. And the other night, the other nights were all in uh, refuges, uh, maybe two nights in hotels, but the rest were in refuges, which are 30 to 45 euros per night, 
at the time and um, provide two meals and a bed and quite often even a hot shower. So how would you say that all of this fits together in Europe? Uh, and of course, it's different from the US or from other places. Okay. I think that this camping or stealth camping question is uh, the biggest deterrent for most North Americans to come to Europe. Because other than along the US trails, wild camping is pretty much illegal, technically illegal almost everywhere in Europe. So this is, let, this is, this is the starting point. There is exceptions in the Scandinavian countries, uh, uh, Sweden uh, and Norway, uh, it is technically legal. The, they have the right to roam, which is also applicable in uh, Scotland That's and for all countries, which is surprising in Hungary. Most people don't know that Hungary, you can also free camp. Huh. So other than that, in almost all European countries, free camping is more or less technically forbidden, full stop. And I have to add, I'm very glad it is that way. This is like the legal point of view and the theoretical point of view. Now we go to the practical point of view. I've hiked about 30,000 kilometers all over Europe, always wild camping with no problem whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So legally, I was breaking the law, I have to say that, but there was never ever any consequences. So why is that? Coming back to what we've talked earlier is 95% of the forest in Europe is commercially used. So you will see big harvesting machines there, you will see foresters there, you'll, be timber, you'll see timber operations and they cause a lot more damage than you will cause with your tent. So as long as you stay away from camping in protected areas, there, there are a lot, but they are very small. So it's very easy to avoid them. You'll encounter no problem and you're not doing any damage. So I don't feel I'm uh, committing a sin here <laughs> or I'm doing something bad because I'm uh, camping low profile. I don't, I never make a fire. It's a big point. You never, never ever make a campfire. Don't leave any trash, and then you'll be you'll be you'll be safe. When I was caught, which happened, which basically never ever happens, but the very few times I was caught, the people were actually very surprised and very friendly. They were like, "Oh, what are you doing here?" <laughs> and um, only once I was caught by a farmer who started, uh, "What the heck are you doing here?" To in the end, "Oh, I was just worried you would get accidentally shot by some hunters. You can stay as long as you want, as long." as when you're caught or if you're caught, as long as you're sort of like, okay, I'm so sorry, I can move along as soon if you want me to, I'm making, causing no problems, I'm making no fire, I'm leaving, I'm leaving no trash, landowners will be friendly because they know with this commercial use, you're not doing any, any damage. They have to tolerate you on their land anyways, during the daytime, you're not supposed to be there at night, but if, you, if, you dis, if you're discreet, uh, you won't encounter any problem whatsoever. In order to avoid potential problems, I'm always sort of, I always sort of hide. It's very easy to just get out of sight. Tuck, I tuck myself away behind some bushes or behind some trees and people don't expect a, a camper 
uh, in, the, in a German or in a European forest. So they don't look for it. And what they don't look for, they don't see. Right. So there's less than 10 times I've been caught stealth camping in Europe. And the times I've caught, there were no negative results. But I have to say, I avoid, uh, I never camp in nature protection areas. Mm-hmm. And I only set up my tent at sunset and I'm usually gone by sunrise. Right. Because again, European forests are sort of populated because there is always like a jogger. There's always someone walking his dog. There's always a forest worker. These people are generally not interested in, in hunting wild campers. They might stumble across you accidentally. Uh, they won't usually, they don't cause you any trouble, but they might ask you questions. Uh, you might not feel comfortable with other people. So, so in order to avoid problems, just be discreet and be away at sunrise. So that's basically the, uh, the solution to the problem. And as I said, I've never had any problem free camping in Europe. Right. So again, you have to you have to be comfortable with the fact that you're breaking the law. There's no way around it. You're, you're breaking the law, but nobody nobody really cares as long as you don't light a fire and as long as you don't leave any trash. And. James and Amy, who I interviewed about the Tokai Shizan Hodo, had had much the same same sorts of rules for themselves. Uh, particularly the the one you mentioned about sunset to sunrise and uh, not being so present outside of darkness. Uh, you know, people don't come walking along on their morning walk and find you there. Uh, you're gone already. Um, or you're sitting there with everything packed up and you're eating breakfast, right? Exactly. But, but again, I want, to, I want to emphasize this. Even if you are caught, the most likely reaction be, will be curiosity and not, what are you doing here? I'm calling the police. Right. Uh, and even if you run into a forester, as long as you immediately say, okay, I'm so sorry if I broke any laws, I will move on immediately. Look, I, don't, I didn't leave any trash. There is no fire. They will be lenient because right. they know themselves you're not causing any, any damage. But if you go there with a huge campfire, uh, having a loud party, of course, they will call the police. Of course, you will be fined. Right. It all, it all depends on, on your behavior and avoid nature protection areas at all costs. This is where you really will get into trouble, where you really might get fined. But other than that, no problem. And especially like in, in, in countries that are less populated, like Eastern Europe, there's just no one there. Nobody cares. So, yeah, it's, it's, it is theoretically free camping or wild camping in Europe is a problem, but Practically, it's not. Well, I'm also listening to this and thinking of a conversation that I had in France many years ago uh, where I was asking about this issue, and I've forgotten exactly who I was speaking with, but I think it was a landowner, and and, uh, I said something about camping, and they said, oh, no, no camping allowed. And... uh, but it turned out that when they thought of camping, they, they thought of someone arriving with their car and setting up a big tent and having a campfire and the whole family's there and they're drinking until late at night. And when I described what, what I was thinking of in terms of camping, they said, oh, you mean bivouac. <laughs> exactly, bivouac, yes. So, so to them, it was, it, you know, bivouac is, is, you know, what 
what a backpacker is doing. You know, you come through, uh, as you said, no fire, uh, you know, maybe a small cook stove to heat some water, but, but nothing more than that. And a, a small tent or less, a tarp or a, a, a what Americans call a bivouac bag, and, and you're up and gone at sunrise. So, uh, and this, and this was just sort of, you know, well, naturally that's okay. <laughs> you know, no, no problem. <laughs> As you're well, to, to go into legal terms here, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really advise anyone like to study the European laws on uh, wild camping because they differ from country to country and even like from region to region. Right. So there's a big difference between camping which means as you said coming with a car a big tent uh drinking all night long then there is bivouacking uh which is a tarp or like from sunrise to sunset but this is like a, sp a very specific thing to france and there's resting like even german strict laws allow you to rest in the forest so if i just rest there overnight because i'm tired nobody uh, can say anything against it. But uh, what is the, the, the difference between resting, bivouacking and camping are sort of fluent and nobody really knows where, is, uh, where does bivouacking end and resting stars and gone as well. So honestly, but I wouldn't try to go into any details. I wouldn't try to obey the law to the last letter. Right. I would just say, okay, this is, uh, just assume that where you are, camping is legally forbidden which it most likely will be but still do it anyways and be discreet right that's that's the recipe or enjoy the refuges and and hostels <laughs> and and uh, not having to carry food with you um, if you enjoy the hostels uh also being a big wallet because this will over on a through hike, this will add up. The cost for accommodation will add up. So this is another reason why I'm always free camping. It's just it's just expensive, yeah. and you will have to go out of your way. There is not many trails which are, which have a, a good infrastructure of of, of shelters and and uh, and refuges where you can camp all all along the way. Right. Even if there are, um, you're looking at at least 30 to 50 say 50 dollars a night uh, in terms of u.s money and that's 350 dollars a week right there uh, so you go out for a month and you've spent 1500 dollars very quickly um, let me just put it uh, uh, let me just get, give you an interesting remark here it's um if you look at big Europe, uh, there's not only a lot of variety culture-wise and culinary-wise, there's also a big variety when it comes to prices. So uh, and there's also like a, a sort of like a popularity list in Europe where, where European thru-hikers want to go. Mm -hmm. Most European thru-hikers, they love to go to some sort of wilderness areas, and the only wilderness areas left in Europe are in Scandinavia. Right. So... So if you want to do a through hike, they go to Norway or to Sweden, which are the most expensive countries in entire Europe. Right. If you hike from hut to hut uh, in Norway, you'll spend uh, uh, about 80 to 90 dollars per night for staying in a dorm. Right. 80 to every night. Yep. So whereas if you go to Eastern Europe, which is one of my favorite areas to hike, 
you can, for example, hike in Bulgaria uh, from hut to hut, spending as little as $10 a night, including breakfast. So this is another consideration, like if you look at your budget, if you say, okay, this is my once in a lifetime trip and I always wanted to hike to the North Cape, okay, go for it. Uh, if you have, if your budget is big enough, okay, you can do it. The infrastructure is great. You can buy food in the huts, you can sleep there. The food is excellent. But if you, if you buy food and stay there, this adds up to, up to 120, 150 euros per day. Uh, so, sorry, not euros, uh, dollars, dollars uh, per day to right. stay in the, in these wonderful, in these wonderful fjell stations, as they are called. Right. Whereas uh, you can stay for like a quarter of this amount uh, of this amount of money in Eastern Europe. So, see, like, what, what, what am I able to afford? And choose wisely which re region you go to, and don't just follow the herd. Okay, everyone goes there, so this is where I want to go to. Just say, okay, there are so many factors uh, uh, that that impact your hike. So choose wisely. Mm-hmm. And certainly Eastern Europe, uh, which I think for, for many people, partly because the languages are less familiar uh, or less widespread, less likely to have been studied in school, might not be the first thing that comes to people's minds. But uh, from people I've spoken to and from, from photos I've seen, I have not hiked in Eastern Europe. Well, I have not hiked in, in like Eastern EU um, myself, uh, but the, the the mountains are stunning, are they not? <laughs> it's actually, I love hiking in Eastern Europe because uh, this is like really adventure stuff. Yeah, and you have uh, uh, you have the mount, the mountain ranges, as I said, are stunning. And and I give you another example of like why it's not as difficult as you expect it to be. Uh, I hiked all across Eastern Europe to the Bulgarian Black Sea coast. Uh, of course, I was in Bulgaria, I've hiked through Bulgaria, which really scared me because Bulgaria is not only a different language, it's also like a different sign system. They don't use Roman letters, they use Cyrillic letters. Ah, right. So, and it's a Slavic language. So I don't, I don't speak Russian or any, uh, any similar language right. and I can't read Cyrillic letters. Right. So I was really scared. Yeah. Uh, but it was dead easy to hike there because no Bulgarian expects you to speak Bulgarian. Mm -hmm. It's a tiny country, 7 million people, and nobody expects you to, to, to know their language. Right. So most people you deal with, and which is in Bulgaria, you usually deal with old ladies because they are the ones who rent out uh, the spare room in their house or who run a pension or who run a restaurant. It's really older ladies. They don't even speak English. They don't even speak Russian. They just speak Bulgarian only. But communication is no problem because they all know Google Translate. They all have your smartphone. <laughs> so they don't even deal, deal with you. They just, as soon as you arrive, they pull out their smartphone Sometimes they forget to put uh, to, to switch on voice recognition. Then you see this old lady yelling at her smartphone because she thinks, as, 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 if I speak loud enough, Google will understand me. So then you have to tell, okay, switch on voice recognition. And so they yell into their phone and then you, you get handed over this phone and you read what they just said in, in English translation. Right. So uh, 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 then you yell into their phone as well. They take it back and see, oh, what, what has she said? So... 
these uh, uh, yelling at your smartphone conversations uh, might not be very fast, but they are very effective. Right. And uh, so it works and they, it, it's not complicated because they know, they know the problem. Right. And even like uh, most of these places uh, they rent out, they don't live there. So when you book it via via the internet, you go to this place. And I was always worried, like, what do I do? I have to call them. So they open up, they open the place up for me. But but how do I call them? Uh, I don't speak Bulgarian. So what happens is as soon as they see this uh, foreign phone number on the phone, <laughs> they just say, yes, I'm coming, hang up. And five minutes later, you'll, they are there because they know, okay, if it's a foreign number, it can only be my guest. Right. Is in front of this uh, this place, so as I said, no problem whatsoever. They are all on these uh, booking platforms, right? So you don't have to call ahead; you just book via internet. Really, okay. And you get these uh, weird message uh, as an SMS. You always have to, first rule of thumb. First rule with hiking in Europe is don't do it without a smartphone. You're lost. You need the smartphone all the time for Google Translate, for booking your uh, accommodation. You just need that. Good news is, no matter which country you go to, buy a European SIM card. Uh -huh. Because the good thing in you is that uh, you have free EU roaming. Right. So if you buy a German SIM card and you have a data, uh, you have a data package, you have a uh, you have a voice package. It's also applicable in all EU countries. Okay. So you don't have to buy another SIM card. You don't have to pay extra. You don't have to pay roaming fees. It works in all European countries. Okay. That's... So ideally, you fly into a country with a cheap, uh, uh, with, with cheap right. uh, SIM cards, <laughs> prices. Yes. Buy a SIM card and then go traveling around Europe because it will work everywhere. Right. Well, that's that's powerful advice. So. <laughs> So again, so so, but but bring a smartphone and use it because you'll be lost without it. You need it for booking. You need it for Google Translate. And so with a smartphone, there's not much of a communication problem left. Right. In in Bulgaria, the only problem I encountered was that I was I didn't use Google Voice recognition. I I typed in my question and then I handed over my smartphone to what to one of these old ladies. Mm -hmm. She looked at it like I've never seen this before, and I said, "What? What? what, what why does she just type in the language, the, the question?" Right. Until it dawned on me, she doesn't understand the keyboard. Ah, uh, right. She's Cyrillic. I'm on Roman letters. Right. So she couldn't use it. She can only use voice recognition. So if you keep that in mind, uh, well, problem is solved. Even the hiking in weird places like Bulgaria or Romania or wherever you want to go. Right, and and. Um... Naturally, it would have to be an unlocked smartphone. Uh, all of Europe is on GSM, right? Yes. Okay. So those are two more items for the smartphone one is bringing with one. <laughs> I have to say, other people collect stamps. I collect ZIM cards. <laughs> Wherever I go, I buy a ZIM card. So I have these bizarre Israeli or Chilean, Chilean or whatever Zim cards. Because wherever I go, I, the first thing I do is I buy I buy a Zim card to be able to, uh, yeah, to, to 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 travel in this country. I think nowadays, uh, it's it, it's just it's just necessary for survival. I I, I understand that people want to do uh, how how do they say social media detox, 
when they hike, they say, oh, it's so great not, not to use a smartphone, which might work for people on a day trip or on a section hike. But if you're through hiking, there's just no way to go without a smartphone. You need it for weather forecast. You need it for booking accommodation, right. for train connections, public transport, and so on and so forth. So it's just, uh, if I have a problem with my smartphone, I panic. Like one time my smartphone wouldn't charge anymore. Right. I didn't, I couldn't, I, I didn't know what the problem was, but I really panicked. I said, if I can't recharge the phone, how do I survive here hiking wise? So, so whatever you do, bring a smartphone, buy a SIM card, and then you're good to go. Right. And of course, uh, the coverage is good in Europe, right? You have, you have good high-speed data available in, I think, over a great deal of, of the area where one would be hiking. Uh, whereas in the United States, on these long-distance trails we were mentioning earlier, there are many dead spots where there is no coverage where you can pick up data. Again, here the free EU roaming comes in. Here's another te interesting technical detail. When, for example, I have a, I have a German SIM card. You probably, in the US, you probably have an American SIM card, which is Verizon or T-Mobile or whatever. So right. that means in your own country, you can only access T-Mobile or Verizon network, or in Germany, I can only access my, the network who, which issued this SIM card. As soon as I go outside Germany, because we have free EU roaming, as soon as I'm outside my own country, I can access all telecommunications countries because they all have these contracts with, with, which is out, which, which each other. And that means uh, outside my own country, I have basically 100% coverage because if company A doesn't cover that, company B does. And outside my own home country, uh, the SIM card switches to whatever is available. Right. Yeah. For Americans who are listening, there are at least two uh, providers in the United States that do provide nearly worldwide roaming uh, without any extra charge. So I, I won't get into the details on those, but, uh, but, but one can look them up and find them on the internet. Uh, well, I think it's a question of prices. Like uh, I found your, I found American telecommunications prices outrageously expensive mm -hmm. here in uh, Europe, because there's so much competition mm -hmm. First of all, we have uh, most people use a prepaid system. So you don't have a contract, but a lot of people go with prepaid. And to give you a, to give you a price range, uh, for example, here in Europe, for uh, one month of unlimited calls, completely unlimited, and uh, I think seven gigabit of data, I pay 12, 13 euros, which is like 14, 15 dollars. Right. Yeah, so it's, it's it's really it's really outrageously cheap. So I wouldn't go for these expensive roaming around the world uh, uh -huh. packages. I know they exist, but they are very expensive. Just go and buy a buy a SIM card in the country you are. It's 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 it's, it's generally a lot cheaper. Yeah, the the ones I'm thinking of are are not as expensive as you're saying, but they're still a lot more than ten or twelve euros a month. At any rate. So there are a lot of skills that one needs for long distance hiking. And I was wondering if you have any general advice for people on how to acquire the knowledge, skills, and abilities, uh, or to build them up that one needs for this sort of hiking. Well, I think you learn by doing it. So just 
first advice is just go out and <laughs> and and do it. There is no technical learning. You can only you have to do your own mistakes. You have to commit your own mistakes. You, uh, yeah, it's learning by doing. But we talked a lot about uh, electronic stuff, and I think this is where you can really prepare yourself mm. because, especially as a long distance hiker, um, I I'm not able to carry heavy paper maps. So I never, ever use paper maps. Uh, I just use electronic navigation. I use a GPS device. I use my smartphone as a backup. I work a lot with satellite images, uh, with downloading GPX tracks. So all my navigation is digital. And this is something you should not learn by doing because learning by doing in a wilderness area could lead you into life-threatening situations. So uh, this is something I would practice at home and yeah, practice it really a lot. Mm. Don't start practicing that when you're somewhere in the wilderness or even like somewhere, somewhere in Europe. Yeah, well, as well as working out ahead of time how to make one's battery last longer and, and what sort of backup one carries for charging, recharging the battery and that sort of thing. Exactly, yeah. But, exactly. but as you were saying, one passes through towns and such more often through hiking in Europe, so opportunities to recharge are far more frequent than in the United States. Definitely. Here is a, a, another random piece of advice we, we, most Americans won't think of. As I'm stealth camping most of the time, so I can't recharge my phone in the hotel. Right. But there is one practical tip. Where can you recharge your phones in Europe? Uh, and this is in churches. <laughs> Most European churches are open during daytime, or at right. least some parts of the church are open. And right. there's always an electrical outlet because for, for so church cleaning. And if you can't find an outlet near the door, there's always, always an electrical outlet next to the organ because the organ always works electronically. Huh. So, so in a church, if you find an open church, you're safe. And the good thing is what's next to a church, it's usually the cemetery. Uh -huh. What's at a European cemetery? Europeans uh, plant flowers onto the graves. Uh -huh. So there's always like water for, to, to, to water the plants. Oh, really? Right. So, uh, so always, always, I always look, if, I, if, I, if I'm planning like, where do I have this lunch break? Where do I have my lunch break today? I always look, uh, is there a church where I can go? because it provides you with electricity and with water. So huh. that's interesting. I've, I've heard of, I once heard a story, I, I haven't heard it corroborated, of a woman uh, who bicycled across the United States and people said, well, did you camp? And, and she said, yes, I camped all the way. And where did you camp? How did you stay safe? And she said, oh, I always found uh, the biggest headstone in in the cemetery in the town and i camped behind that and no one knew i was there and nobody came in the cemetery at night <laughs> yep yep i've never camped in cemeteries i have to say and i i i, I would avoid it uh uh in in europe but it's a it's a good idea <laughs> it was it's an interesting idea yeah so we talked a bit about costs certainly a big one is camping versus using lodging. And are there other 
variables in cost that that would come to mind that people should think about? You talked about geography, of course, uh, Eastern Europe versus Scandinavia. Anything else that comes to mind? Well, being a former businesswoman, uh, I, of course, uh, have always always had the costs in mind. So um, I've been monitoring my costs for years now, right. and I've been breaking them down into various into different portions to make them more calculable. So whenever, wherever I hike, my normal budget is around 1,000 euro per month. I use 1,000 euro per month. So right. 1,100, 1,000 $200. And this goes into different parts. So the first part is what you spend your daily cost, what you spend every day, which is, which is like more or less the food you buy. And in Europe, as well as in the in the U S I can get by with uh, 10 euros per day buying from supermarkets and 10 euros per day in most European countries gets you really, really good food. First of all, good news is chocolate is really, really cheap here, Mm -hmm. (laughs) especially in Germany. Germany has the cheapest chocolate prices in the Western world, I think. Really? Yes. yes, yes, yes. And uh, uh, 10 euro gives you, gives you a lot and you, you get good food for that. But this, this adds up to 300 euros per month. Right. But uh, most people forget about the second part, which is like uh, your costs you have during rest days. Mm-hmm. Because right. you're doing a rest day or your zero day, you will stay in a hotel. You will usually not stay in a shelter, but in a hotel in town. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, again, depending on the country, is something between 30 and 50, 60 euro per day, per night. Plus, you want to treat yourself. You want to go to a nice restaurant and eat some better food which is also like one of the uh, highlights in Europe that uh, you, you don't have to go to McDonald's or fast food. Food is, the regional food is one of the highlights of the whole tray. So you, I wouldn't like save money on that, but I would really treat myself and eat, eat local food. Right. Another thing that you have to calculate here in Europe is because it's such a cultural trip, you should set money aside to go sightseeing, to go, into, to go visit a museum, to go visit a castle. This is something you don't have to calculate in, in, in the U.S. because most there isn't something you can go sightseeing to. But here in Europe, there's museums everywhere, castles and God knows what. So have a little budget set aside for, for, for this. Right. So I personally, I calculate another 300 euro for costs during rest days. Right. Then there's this one, once, this one and only cost like for... Uh, how to get to the trail, how to get away from the trail and to buy uh, uh, your uh, gear. But there's also, especially in Europe, there's a lot more transportation costs. Mm-hmm. Why is that? In uh, On the Appalachian to the Pacific Crest Trail, you either walk through the villages or you can hitchhike or there's trail engines who shuttle you. Right. This doesn't work in Europe. If you want to have your rest day in a bigger place, you have to take the bus to get there, to get back and forth. There is a lot of public transport. It's no problem going, getting there, but you have to pay for that, which can be anything from really little, little as, as little as one or two euro for a bus ride in Italy or Bulgaria to really like uh, expensive uh, transportation costs in Norway and Sweden. So keep that in mind. You will have to pay for that as well. And then there's the last portion, which is like, uh, what is your costs like back home? Do you have, uh, can you sublet your apartment? 
do you quit do you quit your apartment do you have any rental costs at all plus the permanent costs you have for telecommunications right and i really really advise everyone like to buy buy your, if you come to your buy your zim card here it's a lot cheaper right. it is cheaper you still have to calculate these uh, 13 14 euro per month plus you have to calculate health insurance for right. overseas right so for me this adds up to about 1000 euro per month and i've lived happily with this amount most all over the world except high cost places like switzerland or or norway everywhere else 1000 euro worked fine worked fine for me right thank you one of the most important issues and you mentioned that you go all digital where would you direct people to learn about trails and to find maps where we're talking about there being trails everywhere but how does an american or a japanese uh or a filipino who's arriving in europe find those resources okay there is this one website which i just if if i want to indulge in outdoor dreams this is the website i go to other other women browse uh, fashion magazines or whatever i browse waymarkettrails.org <laughs> like one word waymarkettrails.org right and uh, most americans won't be familiar with that although american trails are on waymarkettrails.org as well but the network in europe is just absolutely amazing waymarkettrails.org is a website based on open street map data say it again based in waymarkettrails.org is based on open street map data i see open you're not familiar with open street data. map so i mm-hmm. i i explain them open street map is an open right mm-hmm. yeah yep. osm everybody osm osm is an open project uh which basically says okay there's a lot of like free available data we take that and uh we use the community to collect more data and so it's an open source project people collect data hiking mountain biking whatever they put this data into osm and cr- this way created this huge database mm-hmm. which is called now open street map so uh because this has become so popular more and more official places are providing their official data for free to open street map right So some countries even have gone as far as to say okay we open up all our resources all our data are for free and we are not main we are just switching completely over to 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 OSM. So uh we, it is quite clear that the more people you have collecting data the better the database is. Right. So I think two thirds of uh the active OSM members are in Europe and the biggest party the biggest absolute numbers of uh data collectors are actually in germany so hmm. if you look at osm maps for germany you will see every lamp post every little uh barrier every little uh shop will be on osm maps the maps are actually incredibly good and better than any commercial equivalent So depending on which country you go the quality of OSM maps is better or worse but for entire Europe they they're actually pretty good. So if you go to Europe don't buy any expensive digital or even paper maps just download 
OSM maps onto your smartphone, onto your GPS device. Waymark Trails, the website I was just recommended, Waymarket, one word, waymarkettrails.org. Right. Does nothing else but use OSM maps and puts right. on all uh, GPX tracks that have been gathered for all tracks worldwide, which means in the US, there'll be the Appalachian Trail, there'll be the Pacific Crest Trail and some other major trails, but not right. much more. Whereas in Europe, every little tiny, tiny hiking trail will be on it. You'll be amazed how big the hiking network is. And if you zoom on to Waymark Trails, you will then see, okay, here in this area, you have the uh, blah, blah trail or the whatever trail. And uh, it, gives you the num it gives you the name of the trail. It gives you the length of the trail and you can download mm -hmm. the GPX track from there. So right. Waymark Trails is the perfect tool to find out what trail is in a specific area and you can even download the gpx track is there an app that you use to to manipulate the the open street maps and the way marked trails and uh, how do you put these together on your smartphone okay again uh let me go back to the comparison for, to the from the s2 to, to europe in the us because there is so little trail but famous but uh -huh. little trail there's these famous right. trail apps. Gatuk is the most popular one, I see. Because right. in Europe, there's so many trails, there's no, there's hardly any specific trail apps. It just doesn't make any sense because, uh, except for the Caminos, because everybody hikes wherever. So with this background, you can understand there's a lot of trail apps created by European programmers for, for smartphone that use OpenStreetMap data you can download okay. the street map maps onto your device and download GPX tracks and put this together on your smartphone. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a little bit similar to Gaia in the US, but right. the European equivalents would be like Mapi uh, CZ, which is a Czech uh, uh, device, or Aurux Maps, which uh, which is uh, from a Spanish programmer. So, or Locus. Aurux spelled how? Orux is O-R-U-X, maps, okay. Orux maps. Mapi is M-A-P-Y-Z-Z. Okay. So, but basically all these devices, all these apps are very similar to what you know from uh, uh, Gaia, for example. It's, it's, it's the same principle. You download maps, you can download GPX tracks, and then you can use it for, for navigation. The good thing is, if you use OSM maps, open street maps, they will, like paper maps, already show where the trails are. Because in open street map, the, the different trail routes are color-coded. So you can see, okay, I'm right now on this Camino or this hiking trail or whatever. You don't even have to download the track. It's already on open street map. If you use the right, uh, uh, if you use the right uh, map layer, which contains these uh, these trail these right. trail data. So the the apps like Mappy and Oryx are those open source, or do you purchase free. them? They are free maps. Uh, they are free apps. Free apps. Free. Yeah. Open yeah, OpenStreetMap itself is a is a free is a free project, and these uh, and these apps are free as well. Right. So all of this is open source. Where do you learn about new trails yourself? Where do you get inspiration for a new trail that you want to hike? If I get into dreaming mode, what do I want to do? I just go to waymarkettrails.org. 
And it's huh. it's just amazing because there's so many trails that I just see, okay, is there a hiking trail in Taiwan? And I just zoom in Taiwan and there's one. Or is there a hiking trail in Romania? And I just zoom in and I find what there is. So really for me, this is like uh, the constant source of inspiration. But also, huh. of course, we have in Germany or in Europe in general, there's uh, hiking groups in, on social media. There is outdoor forums. People post trail reports uh, or I meet people on the trail. And this is where I get new inspiration. I have uh, actually trails lined up for the next five years that I want that I want to hike. There's, uh, I can only say so many trails, so little time. Does that apply to paddling as well um, in places to, to take your kayak and, and paddle? Not, not quite so much. The problem with kayaking is that, uh, as I said, with, with your little backpack, I can go basically anywhere. I can crawl under fences. I can climb mountains. There is hardly any obstacle I cannot go over as a hiker. With paddling, I'm relying on waterways. I'm relying on lakes and streams, and this makes things a lot more difficult. And actually, in, on the back burner, there's a one trip after through hiking Europe so often, I'm thinking of through paddling it. It's mm -hmm. actually possible with, with one flip-flop, you cannot do a straight through paddle, of course, because of the current, of the river currents. But with one flip-flop, uh, you can actually through paddle the Europe from the North Sea to the Black Sea coast. So mm -hmm. this is another thing I have on my list. But before that, I have to do a lot more hiking. <laughs> I, I actually mapped out that route years ago and started on it in France to paddle across Europe. And uh, I was going to go up the, well, I started going up the canals from France. Uh, I, I got partway across France. And the, the key, of course, is the Danube, which exactly, has yeah. been used many times. Um, there's a terrific article in a 1930s issues of National Geographic of some folks that descended the Danube. Uh, then they were using King, King Ludwig's Canal uh, was the, the missing exactly. piece that, that allowed them to do it. And that had, I think, just been reopened in, in the under the Nazis in the 1930s. Um, so so the actually, I mean, the, the period photographs in that National Geographic article are of uh, the the all of the flags and everything out um, and and this young British couple just happily sailing through it all. There's there's also a, an English book more recently, uh, Jack De, Voyage of the Jack de Crow. But the route I was going to take, I actually figured out a very short portage is a portage of about 30 miles, maybe, or less. You could do it. I, I, I figured out that I could actually take my folding boat, which is what you use too, and make it all the way up the canals. I, I forget the exact route, but it started in France and headed over to Germany and you ended up, you can, you can get on other waterways to within just a few miles of the headwaters of the Danube, which are a small stream, but big enough to put a boat in and then start floating down the Danube and you, you go all the way. Uh, so the Danube is like two-thirds of the way across Europe, and, but it's that, it's that transition from getting from the North Sea or from the English Channel 
to the headwaters of the Danube that are the trick. And uh, and I I did I did find the it was above uh, Lake Constance, I believe. You you go up past that, but anyway, I, I I would have to look at the details. In any case, if anyone's listening and wants to do this, it it can be done. Uh, there's only a short portage. Uh, you would walk for a day or two uh, with your boat on a cart behind you, and then you would put it back in the water and head down uh, towards uh, the Black Sea. Um, you use a a folding kayak, as I have done, um, and you have a feathercraft, which very sadly they are out of production. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's still long-haul kayaks and pack boats in the U.S., and uh, Klepper is still made in Germany, and um, there are various other folding kayak manufacturers. Since I do include kayaks and such as something that can do a long trail. <laughs> um. <laughs> actually, true paddling Europe can be done actually in an easier way because it, okay. it's, the key is, is two rivers. This is where the, only, where the flip-flop comes in. The one is the Danube okay. and the other one is the River Rhine. Because the Rhine, okay. uh, from the Rhine, you can get into, into the Netherlands canal system and from there to the North Sea. So, right. and the Rhine okay. and the uh, Danube are connected. Uh, you mentioned the King Ludwig Channel, which is, a, which is an it. old canal, but uh, it's, it's, it's a lot easier because uh, there is a modern canal. It's called the Rhein-Main-Donau, Rhein-Main-Danube Canal. It's a commercially used canal and it connects the two. So you don't have to do any portage at all. You basically have to do one flip-flop, you set into uh, this canal, go one direction uh, to the Black Sea coast, go back and go the other direction to the Rhine and from there to the North Sea. So with one flip-flop, right. you can go from the North Sea coast to the Black Sea coast. So it's actually Perfect. quite uh, easy. <laughs> and exciting. It, it's a wonderful thing to try to do. I. There are problems one can run into. When I started doing this in France, uh, the the immediate problem I ran into was that I expected to be able to use the locks, which was not realistic. Um, and in fact, canoes and kayaks are not allowed in French locks. And it's probably for good reason, because they are too small and could be sucked uh, into the channels that are used within the locks for, for moving the water in and out. And uh, that could be fatal. Uh, for the person in the boat. One has to have a light boat that one can move around. And that does take us back to the folding boats, which some of which are very light. So Europe does have a collection of long-distance trails that have been laid out and are cataloged somewhat online, and they're referred to as e-routes. I've tried to find information on these routes and it does seem to be difficult to find. Would you be able to tell us more about the e-routes and, and how much have you hiked them? Uh, do you find them a good way of approaching finding a long-distance route to follow in Europe? It all goes back to politics. Trails, it's very difficult to find a way where to start this to, to make it clear why the, the, the advantages and disadvantages of e-routes. So uh, first of all, hiking trails in Europe are maintained uh, or planned out or maintained by two different organizations. Mostly they are maintained by local hiking clubs, by volunteers, like in the US. So they don't get much funding, 
but they don't need much funding because there is no specific hiking trail like uh, put into the landscape. They don't have to create new trail. So hiking club uh, basically just puts on trail markers and connects existing trails that are used for uh, by, by, by tractors or by forests or by whatsoever. So trail building is not a big issue in, in Europe. So these are local trail clubs and they do, their, they do their stuff. And they decided many years ago to have a sort of head organization, the European Ramblers Association. So not every European uh, hiking club is member of this European Ramblers Association. This is where the problem starts. And then there is also, there's also profit organizations in Europe that create purpose-built trails, not built, but uh, they plan trails using existing trails <clears throat> and market them. This is like a commercial business. So they do like theme trails or regional trails and they promote them to attract uh, tourists. They are not included in the European Hikers Association, European Randers Association, sorry. So the European Remnants Association is, again, a voluntary organization of volunteers. They don't get any government funding. They don't get any funding by the EU. It's just volunteers. And every, uh, every once in a while, they, they elect a new president. Right now, it's a guy from Serbia. And uh, some local clubs or some regional or some national hiking clubs are members and some aren't. For example, the Finnish hiking organization said, okay, we don't want to be part in this. You can't build trails in Finland anyway. They drew off, they drew out of this organization. So there is no e-trail in Finland just because they said, okay, we're out of that. And then there's countries who just recently came in after the war came down. It's most all these Eastern European countries, they are new. But for example, in Romania, there is different hiking clubs. One is in, one isn't. Or like uh, in uh, Italy, where I just hiked, there is two big organizations, the FEI and the CAI. One is in, one isn't. So depending on which organization is in, their trails will be in or they won't be in. And uh, because it's such a small organization based on volunteers, they don't have the capacity to mark an e-trail. So they are just sitting there. It's, mo it's uh, mostly all the people who are organized in these clubs. They just sit there, they look at the map and say, okay, we want to create the E1 and which goes from the North Cape to Italy, to Sicily, all across Europe. So they know they don't have the capacity, the funding or whatever to create a known tra uh, specific trail. So they just say, okay, what trails are there? What trails can we use? And they connect these trails on the paper. And then they say, uh, there's this famous book in, in, uh, in German that is a collection of all e-trails, which basically says, if you want to hike the E1 from North Cape to Sicily, you use, in this region, you use the blah, blah trail, which is marked with a red cross in uh, this area, and then followed by the whatsoever trail marked by a green dot in this area. And if you connect all these trails, you can hike from North Cape to Sicily. This is basically how it works. But this doesn't mean that they maintain it, that you will see on the ground, okay, here's the E1. You cannot follow it. Sometimes a hiking trail is marked as the ABC trail plus it's the E1. But most of the times you would just see this is the ABC trail and you know mm -hmm. from your research, this is also the E1. 
So it's not possible to follow any e-trail just from the markings. You have to download the tracks. You have to know where you are. And there is e-trails that are pretty popular. For example, the E5 is a very popular alpine crossing. So this is where e-trail really became very, very popular. But most of the times the e-trails are just nobody knows that they are there. For example, the Camino in Spain is also an e-trail, but just no, everyone knows it as a Camino. Nobody knows it's part of an e-trail. So e-trails are great to get us as a source of inspiration to see, okay, I could go there because each way, if there's an e-trail, it means there is a local trail. But I would just use it as a sense of, as a, as a source of inspiration. And then if you don't like this, whatever loop the e-trail does, just create your own route there. Just use it as a base of inspiration, download the tracks, uh, modify it as much as you like, and this is the best way to use them. Thank you very much. That's a sizable modification of what I had understood <laughs> of the e-routes, so I'm glad to have that. Well, the positive side, the U.S. has three major national scenic trails that crisscross the country. The Pacific Crest Trail, Appalachian Trail, and Continental Divide Trail. In Europe, there mm -hmm. is 12 e-trails that all have the same, have the, the length of the US trails. Most of them right. are even longer. So this gives you an idea right. of the trail uh, network yeah, in Europe. Um, actually, the Pacific Northwest Trail is also a National Scenic Trail. Well, there's more, there's more National Scenic Trails, but I mean, the, the, uh, I'm take, talking about long trails, longer than uh, 2,000 miles. Uh, there's uh, three in the US, but we have 12 in Europe. Of the trails that you have completed, what would you pick as your favorite? Do you have one? <laughs> okay, I get asked this question so often. And uh, if you imagine 53,000 kilometers of hiking, it's impossible to pick a specific trail as, as the best trail. So I always ask back, uh, for, for me, I don't say there's the best trail, but there is the best trail in different categories. Right. So the overall best or the most memorable trail for me, of course, is it's like in, in with love. The, your first love is the one you never forget. And for me, my first hike right. was the Pacific Crest Trail. This is where I learned right. about through hiking. This is where I caught the, the through hiking bug. This is where I fell in love with all that. And this is like the most memorable trail for me. But mm -hmm. uh, because it was just the first one, if I had hiked through hiked the Appalachian Trail first, maybe this would have been my most memorable trail. Right. But then there's different categories, like uh, which, for example, there's a category which was the most luxurious or relaxing trail. This would be Kektura, a trail through Hungary, because Hungary is one of the cheapest countries in the EU. A glass of wine costs 80 cents, uh, and you get all these lovely sweet desserts, you get goulash soup all the time. You can stay into in all these cheap places, holiday apartments for nothing, for almost nothing. And there is a hot springs around every corner. There's a thermal bath, a spa around every corner, which is wow. dirt cheap as well. And camping, wild camping is legal in Hungary. So this was the uh -huh. most luxurious trail I can, uh, I can think of. <laughs> it, it was just fantastic. Right. So then there is, of course, like historically, which was the most interesting trail there. I've hiked for, I've had trails where I followed the front line of, the, uh, of World War II in Belgium uh, for, for, for several weeks, seeing all these bunkers and uh, trenches and, and God knows whatever was left. 
which was definitely not the most enjoyable trail and the most exciting, mm -hmm. but it was historically just fascinating. Or hiking through Spain, which was basically following the, uh, the medieval times, the Reconquista, when Spain was uh, occupied by the Caliph Empire in the Middle Ages. And uh, mm -hmm. so seeing all this uh, Arab influence in Spain, all these medieval fortresses and castles was just fascinating. So this is culturally the most interesting trail. Then of mm -hmm. course, there is uh, the trail with the most breathtaking scenery, which was for me, the greater Patagonian trail in Chile, which was just absolutely mind blowing, but also the toughest trail, definitely type two fun. <laughs> I hated it while I was hiking it. I was like, oh my God, what am I doing there? And why am I killing myself here? And now going, looking back at this was like, wow, this is just incredible. It, Incredibly beautiful. So, right. so give me a category and I'll tell you which the, what the best trail is. But you can't say this is the overall best trail. Great. And which trails are on the top of your list to do next at this point? Again, see, I've, I hiked basically, I don't have a trail of my dreams because when I dream of a trail, I just hike right. it. I'm a professional hiker, so to speak. So there's nothing like this. There's not this once in a lifetime trip I want to do. For me, it's more like, okay, I've just hiked across Scandinavia where I was freezing my, my butt off because it was so cold all the time. And I couldn't treat myself because everything was so expensive. So next trail will be some, somewhere yeah. in the sun, somewhere very cheap and vice versa. Like, uh, or now I've just through hiked Italy always up in the mountains, always up in the mountains, every day, 1,500 meters elevation gain. So next mm -hmm. trail will be somewhere flat. <laughs> so, so, and now for me, I've been hiking in Europe only for the last eight years. I really? haven't been in the US for eight years. And now my tra trail of my dreams is now actually hiking the Grand Enchantment Trail in the US and the Oregon Desert Trail, because I just haven't been in the US for so mm -hmm. long this is where I want to go back. And so there's always a trail, the, 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 the trail of my dreams is always a trail which is most different from what I've just hiked. So I, want, I like the variety. Right. And so it changes every year. Have you year. hiked the Pacific Northwest Trail? No, this is also on the list. So if depending on Corona, the Corona situation, and depending if I get a visa for the US again, I want to do, uh, in, in one season, I want to do Grand Enchantment Trail, Oregon Desert Trail, and Pacific Northwest Trail. Mm -hmm. This would be ideally Corona permitting uh, the plan for next year, but I don't think mm -hmm. this will happen, but who knows? Well, I th we went over your websites at the beginning. Would you like to review those again, or uh, you, would you like to mention your books? and and? Okay, first of all, my books. Uh, have not been translated to English. So I think there's a very little chance that someone who listens to this podcast will be able to read them. So I, I, I don't want to get, go into any, any detail there, but I'm very active on social media. I'm posting every day, uh, when I'm hiking, I'm posting every day, actually at six o'clock in the morning European time uh, on Facebook in German, but you can use Google Translate to see what I'm doing. I have actually a lot of uh, American followers who, who, who translate uh, it this way. But I'm also on Instagram. On Instagram, I'm Christine underscore Turmer. And there I'm posting uh, every day in English. 
but it's more right. like photo-based. Uh, uh, my writing content, my written content on Facebook is in, is in German. But if you follow, if you want to follow me along as a, a non-native uh, German speaker, uh, uh, do it on Instagram because there mm -hmm. it's, in, it's in English and it's mostly pictures. So, and when I want to try, I'm actually very active. As I said, I'm posting every day and you can follow very, very closely. Most of my followers say when I finish a trip, oh God, what do I do now at breakfast time? You're not posting every day. Or as another guy said it less elegantly, okay, the first thing I do on a toilet in the morning is see what is Christine doing this morning? <laughs> is it a great way to be remembered by your followers? So, <laughs> yeah, so uh, go to social media. There, there you can see what I'm, what I'm doing. Okay, well, thank you very much. And I hope we'll talk with you again in the future. And I uh, really appreciate your having done this. And I hope we get lots of people uh, enthusiastic to get out and try through hiking in uh, Europe as soon as all the restrictions uh, start to let up from, from the current pandemic. I hope so. So thank you for inviting me and uh, happy trails to, every, to everyone. Thank you for listening to the Trails Around the World podcast. Please visit us online at trailsaroundtheworld.com and please join our Facebook group under the same name. If you liked this podcast, please help us out by leaving a review on your favorite podcast source, such as Apple Podcasts. This is Sky King, and I look forward to you joining us next time. In the meantime, happy trails to you, and please remember to leave no trace as you enjoy the outdoors.